almost always when we start talking about these within organizations, between individuals, we almost always break them down into who's right and who's wrong here, right? I mean, I this shouldn't have been offensive. Well, it was. Well, I don't think it should have. Well, how am I supposed to know? You know, all of these sorts of things. And I think that's focused on the wrong thing. Um, it's not about right or wrong. Because remember, we're talking about different sets of experiences. So, you know, this is these are the lessons that you've learned from your experiences. And these are the lessons I've learned from my experiences. It, it really isn't about that. It's about the relationship. And at work, our employers say that our relationships are important. It's important to keep those relationships clean so that we can get stuff done together. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook or at goodmorninghr.com. Social justice warrior, racist, snowflake, white privilege. Over the last few years, and particularly the last 18 months, conversations about race, gender identity, religion, and a host of other physical and personality traits have become more and more heated. Even once commonly understood terms like racism have have evolving meanings rife with opportunity for disagreement. Well beyond the widely held explicit biases of previous generations, many contemporary conversations are about less obvious and often unintentionally offensive behaviors that impact employees' sense of fairness and belonging in the workplace. Many well-meaning business leaders have a desire to do the right thing, but are fearful of taking action in such a contentious environment, which is why I've been looking forward to today's discussion with one of the most articulate business trainers on these issues. Rodney Klein has over 16 years of experience as an EEO trainer and presenter with the EEOC and Since leaving the role of everyone's favorite person at the EEOC, he coaches and trains business leaders as the principal at Rodney Klein EEO Training. Thanks for joining me today, Rodney. I I was told there would be food. Oh. (laughs) If I remember the conversation, you you called me, you begged me to be on your podcast. I said, no. Uh, And you (laughs) said that I would feed you and, and... uh, I said, well, okay then. And so, but I'm sitting here and I, I don't have food, Mike. Well, what's this all about? Your Uber Eats email is on its way. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, then. So what is it that we're talking about today? Well, let's just get down to it. What the hell is a microaggression? Uh, seems a bit hostile there, Mike. You have a little <laughs> well, I'm, something I'm, pent up there. I am talking from my my male, white, privileged, <laughs> cisgender, whatever, privilege. So... Yeah. Tell me what, what is a microaggression? We hear it all the time, but is it a, is it, is it, is it a thing? Is it a thing with a a set meaning or is it evolving all the time according to circumstance? Well, yeah, I think you kind of capsulate it. And, and. uh, Okay. Great podcast. Thanks. That's it. (laughs) That takes care of it. And I'm done here and I'm waiting for my food. Um, You know, because when we're talking about a microaggression, I think the, the, the easiest thing to say is it's a, a small 
uh, slight snub or insult, right? That's the that's the definition you get. But most of the time, these things are um, they're outside of our conscious awareness. Uh, we all microaggress. And if I were kind of describing it, it's kind of how you approached it in a sense with your question, and that is, it's a clash of experiences. So we all have experiences. Um, we learn from those experiences. We gain lessons from them. That gives us subjectivity, perspective, a point of view, which is the thing that makes us human. But we all have different points of view, all unique points of view, because we all have different sets of experiences. So when you see a microaggression, what you're really seeing is you have one person with a particular point of view based on their own set of experiences, and they look at the situation a certain way. And then you have this other person with their own unique point of view from their own unique set of experiences that look at the exact same situation in a completely different way. And when those two things kind of run into each other, that's where we tend to have a microaggression. So the example of a microaggression that I seem to see most often for some reason, uh, probably because it's probably one of the most offensive, um, is a white person who's overly interested in the texture of another person's hair, for instance. Um, uh, you know, I don't think it's very fair to ask me any questions about hair, Mike. <laughs> yeah. That's just not right. Well, maybe that's, that's not, not, maybe, that, maybe that that's a microaggression. Yeah. <laughs> stop it, Mike. Just yeah. stop it. <laughs> but so what are some examples of, of like real world unintentional? I mean, it seems to me, amazing that somebody would ask to, to touch another person's hair or just touch it without even asking to, to see what the texture is because it's you know something you're not familiar with. <laughs> to me, with. I, I don't know about it being a microaggression. That's just kind of weird to me. Yeah. I've never asked to touch another person's hair. So that's just kind of odd. I think some, let me give you a couple examples, uh, real, real, real life examples. Um, I work with this attorney uh, around the San Antonio area and she was relating this to me. And she said that she was, she had this client and, uh, they had a, they're working out something with a, with another person who had an attorney. So the, the attorney for the other person sends her this agreement. And so she pulls it up and she does what attorneys do, which is she crosses out this paragraph and she moves this one over here and she writes a bunch of stuff in. And, uh, then she sends it back to the, the other attorney who's a man. Almost immediately, he sends her back an email that says, let's not get emotional about this. Now, based on her set of experiences, how did she interpret that? What do you think? Well, you wouldn't be talking about it if she hadn't taken offense to it, right? <laughs> right. So, so she felt like he was talking down to her as, as, a, as a, a white Emotional superior. Woman. Yeah, as a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how she took it. Now, the... The uh, And the reason she took it that way is because this has been in her set of experiences. She's heard things like this most of her professional life. So when she heard this, it wasn't a simple uh, admonishment. It was directly related to her gender. Now, the ironic part is she's like one of the least emotional attorneys I've ever run across. When she, before she became an attorney, she did like military intelligence. Like, so she's nails. But the first thing she thought of when she when that happened to her was this is specifically targeting me or criticizing me or diminishing me in some way because of my gender. So that was just based on her own set of experiences. So I think that's a good example. There was a 
another one I was I had a uh, when I was with the EOC, I did education. And um, once every couple of years, they would get us all together and they would have a conference and we would train on the things that we were supposed to be talking to communities about. And so I was up in Washington one week and we were having this this conference and it was working lunches and they were bringing lunches in. And and so the first day, you know, there's this little buffet set up and it's sandwiches and I'm walking through the line. And the, right behind me is my, one of my counterparts. Her name is Linda. And I get to the to the middle of the line and the the person who set up the buffet was standing behind it and she goes linda tomorrow we're going to have asian food well you know i like asian food she didn't say that to me linda's last name is lee by the way linda is a chinese american from uh, new jersey so now had remember going back to the premise that we all microaggress so had we actually pointed that out to the to the person who said it, they would have been horrified that they did it. It was something that they just did out of a, an unconscious because of the because of the lessons that we learn from our experiences that are that are just in us and they're not necessarily in our conscious awareness. But that was a, on that person's behalf. I mean, that was a an an intentional effort to connect with Linda. It was kind of ham fisted, but it wasn't meant probably in any way as a, as a negative or as a slight to her, it was just that, that person's attempt to, to make connection, right? I think you're absolutely right. And, but I think the, we're talking about different experiences. Mm -hmm. So from Linda's experience, now I'm just, I didn't, Linda and I didn't talk about this, but, but from somebody like Linda and her experience, what does that say to her? I mean, you know, I'm being continually reminded that, Maybe I'm a foreigner in my own country, that I'm different from everyone else. So, uh, you know, that's how somebody from with her set of experiences may interpret something like that. Why? Because it's not the first time she's heard it. And I think that's the I think that's an important part of microaggressions, because, you know, I hear the criticisms of it. Oh, you know, I can't say anything anytime, anyhow, anyway. But we don't recognize, I think, a lot of the times that these things have have weight to them. Let me give you an example. Um, I was at a, a educational event one time and I had a counterpart with me by the name of Deb. And so we did the event. It's over. We're all standing around talking. And let's say I'm standing right here. Deb is standing to the left of me. And there's this other gentleman standing to the right of me. And we're having this three-way conversation. Right in the middle of the conversation, this young guy walks up and he introduces himself to the other gentleman and gives him his card. And then he introduces himself to me and gives me his card. And then he turns around and walks off. Deb was mad. Deb was mad. That was like three years ago. I have a cell phone. I could get Deb on the cell phone right now. And she would spend the next 20 minutes telling you how mad she still is about that. Why? I mean, I could look at that objectively and say, well, what's the big deal? I would have been, because that was a professional relationship I didn't care about. I threw his card away the second he left. I would have been thrilled had he ignored me and given his card to Deb. So why three years later, she's still mad about that? Because it's not the first time, right? Nobody gets mad at the first microaggression or the second or the 20th or the 200th, but it's somewhere along the lines, these things have weight. And I think we miss that. If we see somebody that seems to 
respond in what seems to be a disproportionate way, because remember, these are small events, uh, we tend to think they're overreacting. We're not really thinking about the fact that there's weight behind these things. So intent doesn't necessarily matter, um, but that that puts us in a position where we have to spend a fair amount of, of effort in a lot of these situations before we actually act to predict what the other person's response may be to a certain thing that we wouldn't think is discourteous, but could be misinterpreted uh, by somebody else because of their experiences. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, well, and, me, and, and I'm not trying me, to pin you to the wall here. I, no, I, no, I, let, no, let, to, me, yeah. let me paraphrase what I hear you okay. saying. Let, let's go to the coffee household, right? So, so let's say uh, one day your wife comes up to you and says, Mike, this thing you've done a thousand times, it's just getting on my last nerve. Oh, you were and, at breakfast this morning. Yes. And you turn around to her and you say, darling, because that's probably, I'm guessing how you talk to your wife. You say, darling, <laughs> that would this really isn't on me, right? This is really on you. You actually have a responsibility not to be offended by anything that I say or do. And the fact that, that you are offended by it, that's actually hurtful to me. And I'm not so sure I'm ready to move on yet. How, how does that conversation go? How does that oh, end? Oh, it blew up when I said darling. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right. But I, but what I, I didn't mean to, to say, suggest that um, it wasn't uh, an appropriate thing to do to try to second guess how this other person may evaluate what I'm about right. to say. Um, but it's, uh, but it's a skill, I think, that a lot of people haven't developed. I think in a sense to remember that, again, going back to the premise that we all microaggress. And, I, and the, the point I'm trying to get at with that particular story is, is that almost always when we start talking about these within organizations, between individuals, we almost always break them down into who's right and who's wrong here, right? I mean, I, this shouldn't have been offensive. Well, it was. Well, I don't think it should have. Well, how am I supposed to know? You know, all of these sorts of things. And I think that's focused on the wrong thing. Um, it's not about right or because remember, we're talking about different sets of experiences. So, you know, this is these are the lessons that you've learned from your experiences. And these are the lessons I've learned from my experiences. It, it really isn't about that. It's about the relationship. And at work, our employers say that our relationships are important. It's important to keep those relationships clean so that we can get stuff done together. So it's not about whether I was supposed to know it or I wasn't supposed to know it or I did it or I didn't do it. I have an ob We have obligations to each other to keep that relationship clean. So if you, what I'd like to do is create an environment in which you can come back to me and say, yeah, you know... You, you've done this a whole bunch of times. You've interrupted me in meetings like a thousand times. And, I, and I, I, you know, we just need to kind of get past this because this is impacting my way, my ability to get my job done. And it's that impact that's important. Uh, not whether you're right or wrong about it, but the impact that that has on the relationship at work. We have obligations to one another. And I think sometimes 
in our kind of highly emotional society or states that we're in right now, we tend to forget that we have obligations to each other and we kind of entrench on the fact that, well, I'm right about this and you're wrong. So let's start from there. Now, that's not where we need to start. <laughs> we need to start from the fact that we all do this. Most of the time, we're not conscious of it, but we are still responsible for it. And we all need to have accountability to one another. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHARM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits and enter the keyword Klein. That's K-L-E-I-N. On Thursday, September 9th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Using Organizational Values as a Planning and Accountability Tool. This webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of business recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this program after September 9th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit. And now back to my conversation with Rodney Klein. So the other part that of this that comes up is the the person who whichever person's in a position of power uh it's it does seem that and i wouldn't i wouldn't disagree that um certainly if i'm a leader in an organization or a supervisor or a manager of people how i relate to the folks that i report that report to me is critical because i need them at their most productive and I need to make sure that they that we're on the same page with what the organization's values are, where we're moving as an organization, and what I need from them to succeed, you know, to for this organization to succeed, and what they need from the organization at the same time. Uh, so I can definitely see that. But what about the peer-to-peer microaggressions? I mean, how's a, a company? Ever, can, is this something you can address through policy, or is this something more that's just on an individual basis, we just have to learn to get better. I think in a sense, maybe a little bit of both, right? I think we should all kind of strive to be a little bit more empathetic. Um, we don't always have to agree, but we do have to understand where each other is coming from. Um, I, I've always said I, it may be possible to manage people without a sense of empathy, but I don't think you can ever lead them without a sense of empathy. Uh, you have to understand where people are coming from. And I think that's that's important. And how so I think it's good that we work on that end of it, work on ourselves to a certain extent. But I also think that there is policy considerations. We tend to discourage people from coming forward with issues in organizations, right? The the number one um priority for managers within organizations when it comes to workplace behavior is to keep a lid on things. And that's not really very healthy, as we know, if we're talking about, let's say, our relationships. We want to create policy because we're trying to create culture. And you do that through policy as well. And you, you're you trying to create a culture which encourages people to bring up issues and to talk about things and, and to have and to keep those 
those relationships as clean as we can keep them. Uh, because when they're not, then people just can't perform the right. You're exactly right. In order to get the best out of your people, you need them all to feel as though they are uh, part of the group and active and that their opinions matter and that they're not being sort of brought down. And I th- And so I think you have to do that both individually and through how organizations react or respond to uh, workplace issues and behavior issues in the workplace. What would those policy considerations be then? Um, how do you how do you police that in policy? Policing is a brutal word, I think, because remember we all do it, right? right? We all microaggress, and so I, police is is a is kind of a brutal um, label to put on it. I think you have to do that through. Um, like I said, you want to uh, encourage people to come forward. You want a complaint process that doesn't sort of automatically circle the wagons and make it antagonistic with individuals. Uh, some of that you do through how the the system is set up for people to come forward with workplace issues. It could be in training. And you talk about microaggressions and training about how this stuff works. It could be in addressing it in your group meetings if you're the manager and, and making sure that you've created dialogue with people. If making sure that your people are plugged into informal networks, uh, we I don't think we talk about this enough in microaggressions, but but when people come to work for us, uh, we know that there are two ways that they learn. We we hand them the book. The book says this is how we do things, but then we start talking to each other, and what do we find out? That this is the way you be productive, and so. We need those informal networks. And sometimes when we're looking at people who are, are being subjected to microaggressions, they're, they're, that's happening by them being excluded from these informal networks. They, they're not put in a position to succeed. Right? There's that, that good information that they need on what the boss looks at and how you get your work seen and relationships that are important at work. All of those things you don't learn from the book. All of those things you learn from your relationships. None of us have gotten to where we are without the help of at least somebody else, one other person, most of the time, many other people. So we, so as a, we need to make sure within our culture and within our policies that people are being able to plug into those formal and informal networks to be successful. I think that's policy-wise. As far as the, the peer-to-peer coming back to that, I think there are ways that if we have a culture that's open, that if somebody's being subjected to a microaggression that they'd be able to assess, right? And because I don't think there's a one size fits all approach to this when you're dealing with individuals. You you assess your safety, right? Because you talk about if the microaggression's coming from the owner of the company and it's a toxic work environment, that's a different situation than if, you know, one of my close workplace place friends is doing this to me and we're peers, right? Those are two different relationships. So we assess our own safety, and then we also assess uh, how likely it is we are to succeed in the manner in which we want to address it, right? So it could be, do I have friends in the room? How do I address this? Let me give you an example. I had a, you know, because it's interesting, Mike, because when I started talking about microaggressions, it was largely to HR people. And because it was to HR people, my emphasis was on how organizations respond to this. But what did I find? Every single time I did this present did a presentation on microaggressions to HR people, 
the HR people came back and said, this is happening to me. How do I address this as an individual? So I've made part of my standard presentation to HR people on microaggressions address how individuals should do this, how they should address these situations. And there isn't any one size fits all approach to it because you have to assess your ability to be successful. So that might be having a direct conversation with an individual. I had one HR person, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting story. She was saying that um, uh, they were at, they had a big meeting. The, the, the company was supposed to be focused on some issue, a big issue. And so they had like 50 managers in a room and they were brainstorming. The CEO was up there and they were pitching ideas. And um, the, the, uh, she said about, oh, maybe 45 minutes into the conversation, this woman who had been with the company for, for a number of years, um, maybe about 30, 40 years, uh, was, stood up and said, here's what I think the solution is to the problem. And then she said that, and then they went back to talking and pitching out ideas. And it said about 30 minutes after that, these two young guys stood up and said, uh, here's what I think we should, here's the solution to the problem. And the solution they gave was the exact same solution the woman gave uh, earlier. And everybody went, wow, that's a you got beautiful, wonderful, great solution. Let's do this. And so the, the HR person who was telling the story said she stood up and said, I just want to point out to everybody that what these two guys said was the exact same thing she said 45 minutes ago. And, um, and so, you know, we were all, everybody in the room was kind of silent because, well, she was still working for them. So we figured she didn't get fired, but that was kind of a risky thing to do in that setting, calling out the CEO of a company in front of 50 managers. So the logical question I asked was, how did that go? <laughs> right? And she was, and she was like, well, it went well because I've known the CEO for a long time and I knew that he would take this in the, in the spirit that it was intended as, as constructive criticism. Now, what did she really do? She assessed her own safety and she assessed her ability to, um, to achieve success in how she handled it. But I think that's imperative for everyone to do when they're subjected to these things is, is to make those assessments. Because there are some people that do microaggressions on purpose right they're trying to get under people's skin by these small events and that's a that's a completely different situation than the the buffet line that I, we were talking about earlier well and i think unfortunately that has become a in some part of our, our population and i would i would argue on both uh both sides of the political or philosophical aisle uh, it's become performative. There are some folks who are actively looking for a way to be offended by you taking offense at what I just said, or the way I said it, and, uh, and, and you know, looking to needle other people and offend them just, just so they can defend their right to be offensive. And it's then I think on the other side, there's, there are people who, you know, I've definitely worked with employees over the years who are actively looking for reasons to take offense and uh, and to misread circumstances um, that, you know, in, in, in their in their in their favor. So, yeah, I think it's um, again, that's why I think it's imperative that we repitch the discussion. It, it really isn't about right or wrong here. It's about what do we need to do to keep this relationship clean? 
we have obligations to one another. Let me give you a, just a little example of that. Um, at the EEOC, when I worked for them, I did seminars. I, I hosted seminars. And uh, way back when I first started doing it, like, I don't know, 16 years ago, um, I did a seminar. And when we did the seminar, people would evaluate us. We'd have the old paper evaluations. And I would grab those and I would go home and I would read them all up. And and so I was the worst thing you about, can ever do, right? Don't ever read your own reviews, right? Well, you know, you learn things. And here's what I learned. And so I was going through them and there was this one evaluation that's, that pointed out to a presentation that I gave and said that uh, there was a term that I used that was uh, racially negative. I'm like, whoa. I mean, I work for the EOC. I was like horrified. This is not what's supposed to be coming out of me. And I didn't know it. So I, I tried to do as much research as I could. I looked up a bunch of stuff. I read a bunch of stuff. I talked to a whole bunch of different people. I looked through all of the other evaluations and I didn't run across anyone or any source that noted that that was a, a, a store, uh, was a racially negative connotation. So for me, right, I could look at that and I go, I'm right. <laughs> you know, I, it wasn't a, it wasn't uh, a negative thing. And so I'm just going to keep plugging away. But what did I do? Um, you know what? I changed the term. Why? Because there was a deeper truth going on here. And the deeper truth was, it's not just my job to talk to people who agree with me. It's my job to talk to people who look at the world in completely different ways than I do. I've got to be able to communicate with them just like I'm able to communicate with anybody else. And if they're hung up on something that I said, they're not listening to what I said. So it didn't change the content of what I was talking about. It might've been different had it changed the content, but it wasn't a content thing. It was just a semantic thing. And so uh, it didn't, it didn't cause me any problems to change because the deeper truth was we, we all have to live and work with people who are completely unlike ourselves. And, and that's, you know, that goes back to, you know, my college communications class, you know, communications 101, you know, that, it's my job as the speaker to make sure that I'm understood and that I'm, I'm reaching the audience. It's not up to them to understand, you know, to bend over backwards to understand what I'm trying to say. Right. And I think from an organizational perspective, that's important because, you know, we, like I said, a lot of times we get hung up on, on intent and intent isn't in anybody's uh, evaluation. It's not anybody's job performance evaluation. Communication on the other hand is in everybody's, performance evaluation. And so you may not be able to judge intent because I don't know what's going on in your mind, but I certainly can judge what you're communicating. And if I'm communicating with you, Mike, and it's clear that you're taking what I'm saying and going off in a direction that I never intended, it's my job. It's my responsibility to keep adding content or context to that discussion until you do understand what I mean. That's my responsibility as a communicator. Yeah, and I was thinking a minute ago when you were talking about the policy implications, all, one of our three core values at Imperative is um, always work as one with respect and compassion. And uh, we drill, drill all three of our core values home all the time uh, in a lot of different ways to employees. And everybody, all my, I'm, 
I'm blessed with an amazing crew, but they all live all our values. And so it's not something that's probably that I've ever even had come up, but that, that may be because we're so good at hiring people who match our core values that it's just not come up. Um, and, you know, probably if anybody steps on anybody's toes in the organization, it's me, uh, because, you know, I'm me and that's just, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have a propensity for, for stepping into, uh, cow piles, but, uh, I think even there, everybody, my team, at least know me well enough to know that, yeah, coffee, you know, coffee's an older guy who sometimes says stupid shit and we'll have to, uh, you know, we'll have to correct him if we have to, but it's, it's all well-intended and, and well-meaning. And he's, uh, and you know, for, I do, I do try to be aware of stuff. I mean, like, like you, I'm in front of audiences all the time and there've been more than once where I've had people come up after a presentation. You know, I'm talking about background checks and criminal history. And unfortunately in the United States, African-Americans are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at a higher rate than the white population. But I bend over backwards in my presentations to make sure that um, any examples I use of bad workplace situations that came from hiring the wrong person because, and, and because you weren't well informed about it, uh, focus uh, more on the, the you know, that, that it really reflects a lot more, you know, quite honestly, white offenders than it would even the population of offenders who are prosecuted and convicted uh, in their demographics, just because I don't want to give that offense. And I've got one presentation that has five different people in it, and only one of them's uh, a minority. And I had somebody come up to me afterwards and, and complain, all of your examples were minorities. And so she only remembered the one slide. And so, and I was shy, I was shy, I was like, I, I panicked for a moment because I was like, did I really miss that? And I went back and looked and no, it was right. But it's a good lesson. And it makes me think about every time I, I do anything, you know, is am I about to step into something here and offend somebody? I mean, if somebody gets offended at a conference, uh, I'd prefer it be because I use salty language or told a, a risque joke than anything that, you know, that would uh, offend right. them on a personal level. So, uh, so I think about it. So um, one Last question. I think we've kind of touched on it, but what about that situation where somebody comes to leadership and says, I've got a problem with this. This is, you know, this is microaggressing, which I think the term using the term aggression, it's a whole another half hour, but using the term aggression in that, in that, in that top, in that term is, is, is designed to set off a certain group of people. I mean, to, to alienate the conversation already by calling it an aggression because it, it suggests intent and I don't think that's, you know, we just said this isn't really intent. This is uh, this is just, you know, different experiences and not understanding one another. And so but anyway, if, if somebody comes to a leader and says, hey, I've got this issue. Um, what about the circumstance? How would a, a, should a leader address that circumstance where the person really is taking something completely out of context or they're they're really simply, you know, they're there's not even something that would, you know, be reasonable to call a microaggression here. Uh, and maybe that person's looking for a way to be offended or just being really hypersensitive because maybe of other experiences that they've had, which could be legit. But in this particular instance that you're complaining about, we can find no fault. What is, uh, how does a, how would you suggest a leader address those kind of situations? Well, again, I think that kind of goes back to 
sort of judging them, right? And saying, okay, well, this is, this is true. This is not true. This is right. This is wrong. And remember, if we start off the whole conversation with the fact that these, it's based on people's experiences and these impact individuals, right? So the, it is completely, if we're talking about impact, it's completely unproductive to blame the person who's impacted. Right. Because I would I would say that myself, I could look at a situation like with Deb and I'm going, you know, what's the big deal? Why is she offended? And, you know, the reality was in that particular situation, I did not uh, call the guy out. I didn't go and talk to him later. And the reason I didn't talk to him later is because I didn't understand the weight of microaggressions at that time. It wasn't until I was paying attention to her set of experiences that I. um that I started to understand what was really going on there. And so I don't think we're really in a position to say um, uh, yes or no. It's like that conversation with your wife. If she's upset about something, uh, you're really going to turn around and tell her, darling, you really don't have a right to be upset about this. That just, it, it's a conversation never works, right? It never gets you the outcome that you want. It's about the relationship. And that's the key part. Disagreements we have at work create the friction that creates the electricity that drives organizations forward. But the second, the very second those disagreements become personal, we've lost it. Now it's no longer about getting the best decision. It's about winning the argument. And we become entrenched. We want to keep an open-handed with these things. It's not about right or wrong. It's about Let's get this relationship clean. Do we have obligations to one another? Because that obligation flows both ways. So if you and I are working together and you come at me with something that I'm going, what? Uh, you know, it'd be good if I didn't, you know, like do that when you're talking to me. But uh, if I'm not really understanding it, but I'm keeping it clean with you and saying, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll try to do better with that. And um, that obviously I want you to know it wasn't my intention, right? But I want to make sure we have a clean relationship. It works the other way too, right? So if something comes up with me, I ought to be able to come back and say, you know, Mike, this thing is is uh, has been bothering me, and it, it's like the twelfth time you've done it. And so we need to be able to have open enough relationships that we can do it. I understand that that's not so easy within a work environment, and it's not even so easy within a relationship, <laughs> you know. And, but it, I think that's the the perspective that a boss or an organization needs to come from is my organization is largely a network of relationships. And so how that network functions is directly impacts my organization's ability to get their job done, to get its job done. So, so that's a, it's like, you know, making sure you got equipment that's working right, making sure you got the latest software. This is how we manage our people. Well, great. And that's a good way to close it. Thanks uh, for your time with us today, Rodney. Well, I'm, I'm still watching for the Uber Eats outside. Um, I'll be expecting it shortly. But uh, but thank you, Mike, for having me on. And I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the chance. Despite me giving you a hard time, I appreciate the opportunity to be on today and get a chance to talk with you. I appreciate it. And Rodney's information will be in our show notes so you can reach out to him. And I, I've seen him talk, speak dozens of times at conferences all over the place. And 
uh, I know he'd, he'd be amazing for your organization as you, you kind of wrestle with these issues. So please reach out to me. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and Imperatives marketing coordinator, Katie Bautista, keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. And as always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you professionally or personally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well and keep your chin up.